0: Welcome to another episode of Josie Talks, where we invite incredible artists and musicians to come and share their stories and experiences. Today, I'm here with Thomas Morris, the Artistic Director of the Ojai Music Festival from 2004 to 2019. Mr. Morris is recognized as one of the most innovative leaders in the orchestra industry and served as the longtime chief executive of both the Cleveland Orchestra and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. He is currently active nationally and internationally as a consultant, lecturer, teacher, and writer. I am so, so honored to have him here today to speak about his stories and his experiences. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mr. Morris.
1: Josie, it's my great pleasure. Wonderful to see you
0: again. Yes, it's so great to see you. So starting from the beginning, Mm -hmm. you started drum at an early age, and you studied privately at Eastman when you were in high school, why did you pick drum and did you ever try out any other instruments?
1: I suppose one of my early loves, musical loves, was band music. And that, I think, led to percussion. And I you know, was interested in percussion from a very, very young age. And that was really the instrument that I chose. I, I played some piano, but no other instrument.
0: Mm-hmm. And you, also, you ended up going to college at Princeton and Wharton School of Finance and Commerce. Did you ever consider doing a double major since you loved music so much?
1: Well, when I went to Princeton, uh, I actually majored in music at Princeton. Mm-hmm. And during my college years, uh, I, I wasn't a particularly good student. I actually spent most of my time gigging as a percussion player. So I suppose you could say I I kind of did both. But I decided uh, towards the end of Princeton that I did not want to be a professional percussion player as a career. And my advisor suggested I look into orchestra management. And it never occurred to me. And so I said, OK. And in those days, uh, that was in 1965, there was a program run by the Ford Foundation that they called Administrative Interns in the Arts, where they placed you with an organization for a year or so. And so I got a job under that program with the Cincinnati Symphony and did that for two years. But then after that, I decided that I did want uh, to get an MBA degree. So then I went back and got my MBA degree after, after two years in Cincinnati And after that, in 1969, is when I really started my active career in orchestra management and and started working for the Boston Symphony.
0: During your internship, were there any particular experiences that made you think, like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted to do as a career?
1: Uh, It was always really quite simple. I always was and continue to be passionate about music. So I always knew I wanted to be involved with music and musicians, and the only question was exactly how to do it. Uh, and when I decided not to be a performer and to go into the management, you know, I was still in the same field. I was still working with all these great musical artists. And so um, I ended up you know, having the best of all possible worlds. And on top of all of it, when I was in Boston, I ended up uh, being the extra percussion player in the Boston Symphony and the Boston Pops. So in those 17 years I was there, uh, not only was I running the organization finally, uh, but uh, I was was playing percussion in in that great orchestra. You know, just enough to keep my hand in and satisfy me. But I didn't have to make a living at it.
0: Do you remember any, like, performances where you played and what pieces did you play?
1: Oh, I played, I, I remember a lot. I can, I, I mean, I played with everyone. I remember playing in Ravel's Rhapsody, Espanol, conducted by Leonard Bernstein. Uh, I played in the Berlioz Requiem, conducted by Ozawa. I remember playing in the Symphony Fantastique uh, with Ozawa. We were on tour in Japan, and one of the percussion players got sick, so I was drafted um, and uh, and played, Um, you know. I, I played with everybody and uh, and played fantastic repertoire. And I played lots with the Boston Pops. And so um, I've I think I figured out I've probably performed with the Boston Pops "Stars and Stripes Forever" over two hundred times.
0: <laughs> wow! <laughs> you might as well be a professional, like an active performer at this point.
1: Well, you know it was. It was it was great fun, and and I think it was important for my work in administration to have my hand in the performing side. Um,
0: right, right, right.
1: And uh, it kept my it kept my touch with the music, which is something I believe is very important. And when I left Boston, I, I actually stopped playing for a while. Uh, you you know you have to keep your chops up somehow, and um, but then around. 2001 we actually have in Cleveland a professional concert band oh and uh, and so I play and I've played in that and I've gone back to playing so it but it's kind of full circle because I started loving band music and now I'm right back playing it and as a percussion player you know, there's no better music to play anyway so so I'm still I'm still involved in some playing.
0: That's really good. It's really really nice to keep it up.
1: Yeah. And I and I actually when I, in my Ohio years, I think on three or four occasions I actually played in Ojai, which was which was really fun. I remember I played in a performance we did in 2007 of Stravinsky's Les Nos, uh which is a wonderful piece for six percussion players and four pianos and chorus. And
0: so Wow.
1: So I've you know, I've kept my hand in.
0: That's really good. And like the atmosphere to play in Ohio is just So magical! It's It's magical. Yeah, I know. know.
1: No, it's perfect.
0: Speaking of Ojai, you were the artistic director appointed in two thousand four. What drew you to the festival in the beginning? You know,
1: I had first heard about the Ojai Music Festival when I went to Boston in nineteen sixty nine. Because when I arrived in Boston, it was the same, exactly the same time that the young conductor Michael Tilson Thomas went to Boston as assistant conductor. And Michael and I became friends. And uh, Michael really got his start in the Ojai Music Festival in the mid-1960s. He conducted there several times, and, and I think starting in about 1970, he was music director for three, four, five years. And he told me about this incredible music festival. And, uh, and then when I met uh, Pierre Boulez, got to know him in about 1983, he also told me about the Ojai Music Festival. Uh, so I'd heard about it for a long time, but the first time I went was not until 1996, and Boulez was music director. And I was just blown away by the whole thing. It's not what I expected at all. Uh, And I went back several times after that, always enjoyed it. And it never occurred to me that that might be a place that I would work. But then I was approached, uh, I was approached in about 2002, I guess it was, would I be interested in the artistic director job? And I already knew that I was going to be leaving Boston. Uh, excuse me, I was going to be leaving Cleveland in 2004, um, and so I thought it was a perfect opportunity. I liked the idea uh, in Ohio of not having responsibility for the business side of it, uh, but just the creative side, the artistic side. And I thought that sounded interesting because my interest was always in the music. Uh, and so I took the job. And uh, uh, I surprised myself uh, by staying 16 years. Um, and it ended up being a life-changing experience for me. It's, it's um, I learned so much in Ojai. Uh, I learned about what real creativity in music is, is about. Uh, with artists that were not necessarily in my frame of reference in the orchestra world, in fact, I think in all my 16 years, <clears throat> as you know, we, each year we choose a different music director or a chief curator. I think in those 16 years, I chose, I think there's two or three conductors only. But the rest were um, instrumentalists, composers, choreographers, theater director, jazz pianist, violinist, singer, you know, as you know, all kinds of people. Um, and that freedom to collaborate on that scale and that wide variety of people was something that uh, I never anticipated and was was life changing for me
0: what is it like like what is your average day as an artistic director <laughs> like like well how did you put such a large scale festival together every year mm-hmm.
1: i love the idea of an average day i don't know what an, <laughs> i don't know what an average day in the music business is 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 like um um you know when you're putting on events which is what you do uh everything revolves around the events. And so you may have lots of other things you, have, you do, but ultimately you have to make sure that the event happens in the right way at 8 o'clock in the evening or whatever time. Um, in the case of Ohi, you know, Ohi is, is only four days long. But within those four days, we were, we were running maybe 30 events by the time I left. Very intense. Um, and you know, unlike an orchestra, an orchestra is 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 what I call the grid system. There's a weekly schedule and a weekly pattern of concerts. And you fill in the slots. Ojai has no grid. All it is is four days. And within that, you can make up whatever you want. Um, so to be creative in Ojai required not just how do you make programs, but what kind of a program, when, where, everything was up for grabs. And so you had to create the structure, which was very different from an orchestra. Um, In all of those 16 years that I did it, with these 16 incredible collaborators, uh, what was very surprising to me was that the the pattern of the work was actually completely identical. In that, um, the way it would work is, we would, I would appoint somebody three or four years in advance, and we would start to talk, the artistic, the music director and I, about some ideas, and we would start to think, develop some concepts, and I always referred to programming in Ojai as a little bit like um, paint by numbers. You know, you start with the big colors and then you you get to the smaller colors and finally those little dollops of color which give life to a painting. And we would work maybe three years on building the festival. And it was iterative. We would have meetings and have all kinds of ideas and we'd sift and, and we'd look at it, and come back and look at it, refine it. And that process went on usually for a good two-plus years as the, as the thing started to develop shape and coherence. And there was always one point in the planning, and it was usually about eight months, a year to eight months before the festival, when everything all of a sudden would click into place, I mean it was it was like clockwork. I mean we had to announce something, and all of a sudden it would it would simply gel. Uh, and that pattern, uh, that pattern, was exactly the same with everybody. It was mm-hmm. quite amazing. Now once you, once you get it all put together you know, you then have to make it happen. And, you know, I made sure that we had an incredible team of people who could produce concerts. And you, know, you know, made all the contracts and built the schedules and, and did all the things you have to do to, to make, make a concert uh, uh, happen. Um, and, um, so, but my actual work in Ohio always was was pretty much done by six months before the festival because I was already working on the next two or three oh. um, and then and and you know I had Elaine Marton, who was my producer and a great team of people who then made things happen and I would sort of be a presence and watch and make sure that everything was going all right he'd make adjustments but but most of the work in planning concerts uh, is done well ahead of time.
0: So, when you program something, what do you look for, like in a program? What is the key concept?
1: I always the way we would start programming OHI is we would start with, um, with, what I call anchor ideas. You know, big ideas, big pieces that we want to do. And then it's a question of how do you, where do you place those in the sequence, what do you do with them, you know how do you surround them, because every program that you do uh, should I the line I always use is it should have some kind of narrative, whether that's a musical narrative or whether it's an emotional narrative, um, uh, but I always try to look at. Programming, not just from my standpoint and from the artist standpoint, but from the audience standpoint, how is it going to, how is it going to uh, feel? Um, and the absolute must in programming is only program pieces that you believe in. Um, if you if you start programming anything that you're not quite sure of, or you think is kind of a throwaway, the audience will will understand that and it will not, you, you can't hide. So everything's got to mean something. And so I, in programming, I was always looking at the individual pieces. I was looking at the pieces that surrounded those pieces, How how the program itself worked but i also looked at how the programs themselves related to each other cuz in a four-day festival you know by definition it has context everything relates to everything else cuz the audience comes to the whole thing and so how you know how what do you open with what's the impact of that what do you follow that with and so you you adjust the the sequence of experiences. Um, we would we would tend in Ojai to start always with something quite strong to get everyone's attention. Um, we would then. We, we would then tend on, that's on Thursday. Now the year you were there, we did the Wednesday with the Belez thing, which was a special thing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but then, we would then start to put the most difficult music probably in the middle uh, but then also have some concerts which are you know of a lighter variety things that are just more fun uh-huh. but so so that because if you surround a program that's really serious and hard with another program that's serious hard serious and hard there's no contrast so right. you sequence it um, so the way I so programming to me is is very organic and it's all about context either the context within the program or the context between programs or the context with the entire festival and how they fit and so you're always looking at it from multiple dimensions
0: that's really cool and i think that really applies to when i start to program things for my own concerts i try to keep try to have some sort of layer in it where i don't bore the audience with a bunch of serious works following each other you
1: know you know classical music serious music is art music uh, you know it's it's serious art but it doesn't have to be deadly serious and boring
0: mm-hmm. i mean
1: fun and having a smile occasionally is perfectly okay and so i also believe that, that you need a you always need to build into uh producing concerts uh, a degree of a little bit of frivolity a little bit of it's fine to relax occasionally Mm
0: -hmm. so I mean since you were so you're such a big part of programming every year of OHI, do you have any ones that are sort of your personal favorites
1: (laughs) wow everyone always asks me that and um you know I It's really hard to distinguish because I always I always said and I believed it that my favorite festival was the one that was going on right now <laughs> um, and I that's not a that's not meant to be a flip answer it's the truth As I look back um, there actually is one concert that uh, we did and it was in 2017 that to me was probably one of the Uh, Highlights and it was totally unexpected. And this was the year that the pianist uh, Vijay Iyer was the music director, and Vijay was a was pretty much of a um, a surprise choice for Ojai, even though to me he's one of the greatest musicians I've dealt with. But Vijay comes from very different set of worlds than we think of with traditional classical music, Uh, and so we brought with him a a lot of artist friends of his uh, uh, whose music, frankly, I had not been aware of, Um, and one of Vijay's musical roots was an organization established in Chicago in 1965 called the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. It was an organization put together by a group of black musicians in Chicago uh, for the uh, mutual promotion of their own music, and their music was very, very out there and difficult. Uh, it's hard to categorize it, but probably uh, one way to do it—it's it's, a lot of it—is what has come to be called free jazz. You know, this is mm. jazz. Improvised music, but is not in the normal patterns. Um, And most incredible set of characters, composers and musicians uh, were associated with this organization, which, by the way, still exists. And so we did a lot of that music in this festival. Uh, And on the final day, on the Sunday morning, we did a concert, um, a one-hour concert, in which we put together... Uh, one of the founders of the AACM, uh, a pianist-composer named uh, uh, Richard Newhall Abrams, uh, who um, was 90, uh, a reed player named Roscoe Mitchell, who was associated with AACM very early on, and a trombone player and laptop player named George Lewis, a composer who's still very active at Columbia University today. Um, and uh, we, with Vijay, we decided that we would just bring the three of them together and they would improvise a one-hour concert. Uh, and they knew each other and had done this. Um, And it was one of the most astonishing concerts I've ever heard in my life. And what it, it was music that was so out there and so interesting and so creative and so completely unusual. And here it is performed by these three wonderful musicians aged almost 90, Uh, uh, I think Roscoe was 81 or something, and George was in his late 60s. And it demonstrated to me that the new is relative. Um, And that uh, there's a lot of new music that goes way back. It doesn't have to be just created by young people today. Uh, And it gave a perspective of the span of where creativity can reside, and it was just—it was thrilling that we could do that.
0: It must have been such a life-changing experience for everyone who was watching. It was—it was incredible,
1: and it was—and you knew hist- history was happening. And and and, uh, uh, Muhal, uh, unfortunately, passed away about three or four months after. Uh, it was one of his last, if not his last, performance, and uh, so. Um that was I, it was probably an event that sticks out in my mind.
0: That would have been so cool to watch. I wish I was there.
1: Oh you can it's on the it's on the website. You can see it streamed if you go to the website sure. from nineteen eighty seven and you'll be amazed.
0: Alright, I'm writing it down so I can listen to it later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I have to talk about this because um when I went to Ohio, yeah. I was doing a thing for Mr. Pierre Boulez. So yep. um, I understand that you guys are close friends, So, and he's truly such a legendary figure mm. in music to all of us as a conductor yep. and a composer. So, what was he like as a person and as a <laughs> musician?
1: Um, you know, Boulez uh, had a reputation for being a fierce intellect and a very cerebral uh, composer. Um, you know, absolutely fierce in his beliefs. Um, and uh, he certainly had elements in his personality that probably caused some of those reputations early in his life. I met him in about 1983. and um, worked with him you know, actually since then. And uh, he was um, the most level-headed, nice, funny, uncomplicated man. Um, All was generous in time. Um, He had no, he had no, uh, there's no funny business about Belez. It was just, if you had a question, you called him up, and you asked him, and he answered the question. Totally professional. Uh, his music, I I never understood the reputation of the music as being kind of cerebral. Uh, as you remember, in that concert that you participated in, we played lots of different works by Boulez. Right. And and the variety of styles and the expressivity and actually emotionality of the music was was very striking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always found his I've, I've always found his pieces in fact to be extremely expressive. I found his conducting to be unbelievably the same. It, 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 it wasn't he wasn't he wasn't an emotive kind of conductor who sort of went for the, the guts, it was all about the score and the music. But it always had color, balance, uh, expressivity, um, fluidity, um, and that kind of matched, to me, his personality. He was, uh, we became, over the years, very, very close friends. Um, And we visited each other often. He conducted in Cleveland every year. Uh, several weeks, and uh, and I would go see him. and lived in Baden Baden, Germany, and I would go see him there. And I'd see him in Europe or wherever else he was. Um, uh, he was a very important figure in my life. Mm-hmm. He, he taught. I always said that he taught me um, fearlessness. Um, that when you're when you're when you're programming or when you're putting on concerts don't be afraid you know have an idea and just go for it and then deliver it with the utmost of authority and conviction that you can and that actually audiences respond to that Um, and well you saw the 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 concert we did in and i'm so glad we did that concert which was uh, was sort of on the occasion of his 90th birthday Um, In 2015 Uh, and uh, unfortunately he his health was deteriorating quite badly and so he was not able to be there Uh, he was you know he had a long association with Ojai having been the music director there uh, seven times the most of anybody Uh, and he loved Ojai Um, but as I planned that season, uh, I kept Pierre very much up to date on the plans, and he was thrilled that we were doing so much of his music and doing that particular uh, production, the Beyond the Score production from Chicago, um, about him. And uh, and of course, tragically, he finally passed away about six months later.
0: Yeah, I remember when this came up for me. I really didn't know much about Boulez. Mm-hmm. So I, I read about him and I like did my research before playing that segment, but it was just so cool to see the whole production oh, yeah. and hear it from the audience and then hear it backstage when I was waiting, and I really thought it had such a cohesive wrap on who he was as a person. Absolutely, but you see, that
1: was Pierre Boulez was all about relationships, um, and he had he had a relationship long-time relationship with the Cleveland Orchestra. Uh, you know, going back to 1965, uh, it was the first time he conducted an orchestra in America, was in Cleveland. And he did a lot of conducting, was principal guest conductor in Cleveland. And then when he went to the New York Philharmonic and then he went back to Paris to hear come and he stopped conducting for a while. But then when I got to Cleveland, one of the things that I did was form an association with him, uh, which he was ready to do. So he had a long relationship with the Cleveland Orchestra. He had this long relationship with me. He had a long relationship that he developed in the 90s with the Chicago Symphony. And it's the relationship in Chicago is what led to the production, the Beyond the, the, on the Score production, which was produced by the Chicago Symphony uh, uh. for Chicago. And what we did, I, I had seen it when it was, when it was done, uh, premiered there. And um, and talked to my friends in the Chicago Symphony and said we're just gonna we want to in essence rent the production and we'll do it in do it in Ohio. Um, so it was a it was not uncomplicated as you remember. because there's a lot of projections, right, and, and lots and lots of pieces of various works of Boulez. Um, uh, but the idea was to really give a portrait of who this man. Was artistic with.
0: Mm-hmm. It really started out like my interest in him, and although I like didn't get to play much of his music after, mm-hmm. I watched a lot of his conducting. Uh, my conducting teacher was very adamant that I listened to Boulas' conducting, precisely because of what you described. It's very fluid. It's very to the score, and it That's it right. just seems very organic. He's
1: he was a he was a conductor who, you know. When you when you went to a concert that he conducted, you almost weren't aware he was there. He was not. He didn't get in the way of the music and you. He was actually part of the music, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, but that was his belief. He 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 believed that concerts were about the music, not about the personality of the the conductor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and and when. You know, having known him so well, I can tell you that 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 was just how he was. I mean, he was he was always approachable. Um, he was funny. He loved to laugh. He loved he loved gossip, music business gossip, and um, and but just you know just had a great time with him.
0: Mm-hmm. I miss him terribly. I wish I could have met him. He sound like from when I was. Doing the production, he sounded like so interesting. Oh, yeah. He was,
1: he was genuine. What better thing can you say about somebody?
0: Now we're stuck in quarantine, which is probably the worst thing for musicians who yeah. cannot perform. Yeah. Have you been involved in anything? Have you, are you still playing?
1: <laughs> um, well, as you know, I finished my Ojai stint last, a year ago. Right, um, and um, I, I basically have, you know, I've been in the music business uh, fifty years, <laughs> and there have been fifty wonderful years. And I don't, I actually, I don't really see myself doing another big job, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I don't know what it would be, even if I wanted to. Um, and I, uh, I've looked at a bunch of I looked at a bunch of possible projects, but I decided no, I don't want to. Mm-hmm. Do, I've done most of the I've done almost everything, <laughs> you know? and um, so uh, what I've had one project that I have had on my mind for some time um, is actually writing a book, and so um, so I, that's what I'm doing. Um, I've. I've I finally figured out I finally figured out uh, what I wanted to say, and I've got a lot of things I want to say, mm-hmm. and I finally figured out a way to do it. So I'm uh, trying to spend you know three four hours every day working on this book, and I'm uh, making progress. It's really hard. I've never done anything like this in my life, which is one of the reasons it's interesting to me. But that's what I'm concentrating on right now, and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of my, and it's about musical institutions and leadership. Oh, and um, it's not an autobiography, um, although it's.
0: <laughs> I was low, just going to ask.
1: Yeah, but there's a lot of autobiographical parts in it.
0: Uh huh.
1: Um, but it's what's most important is it's what I've learned. Uh, what I what I. What it, all, what it all has meant to me, mm-hmm. and what do I think about the future? And the last part um, uh, is rather urgent that I finish because it's timely.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so, it's, it would be so interesting to read once you come out with it just because I feel like you have experienced all aspects of music Mm -hmm. institution like you went in as a chief executive which is more management and you were an artistic director and we didn't really talk about this but you founded Spring for Music which is completely something else so I feel like you have so much so much to offer and I'd be really excited to read it (laughs) once it comes out
1: well each of the each of of the experiences have taught me things and they've taught me things of uh, they've taught me things about what I believe and, and uh, what I stand for and it's taught me a lot about myself and there's, as I say I've got some things that I do want to say um, I'm uh, I'm fundamentally a passionate music one,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's never left, that's been a constant and everything I've done has had some way that I could express working with music and musicians and I think the future has always got to start from that standpoint. It's got to start from the music Um, and you know I have infinite trust in audiences. I think a lot about professional sports Why do people all go to these professional sports games? What's the fundamental deep reason why do they do it? The real reason people go to sports events is to find out how it comes out. There's an element of uncertainty when you go. You don't know how it's going to end. And that is the adrenaline that's important. And that is the lesson for concerts every concert should have a degree of the unexpected you should mm-hmm. when you go to a concert you shouldn't be completely certain what you're going to hear how you're going to react to it so there needs to be an element of surprise and and that is the opposite of following taste that's actually leading taste and I believe that firmly
0: I think if people, if everyone programmed like that, these concerts would be so interesting. Of because course. With Ojai, I remember reading the program book, and each one I was like, okay, I would really want to go because there's this thing that I've never heard before, and there's part of me that really wants to see what I've never seen, so that really does make so much sense with sports or, games. Yeah, or
1: not necessarily music you haven't heard, but it might be something that you do know that maybe the artists have something unique to say about mm-hmm. or perhaps it's something that's known that's programmed in an unusual way so that you look you'll hear it in a different way but there every single every single time you program a concert um i i think every one of them's got to have a degree of the unexpected you know, the worst orchestral programs in the world are those, I call it the dreaded three-piece program. <laughs>
0: dreaded An opening piece, pieces.
1: a concerto, and then a big symphony on the on the In second the second half,
0: half. yes. It's, and
1: you look at orchestra, orchestra seasons and, you know, 80% of the programs are built that way. It makes yes. no sense,
0: no sense. How would you program it? Say there's a concerto with a featured soloist. What would you put around the concerto? Well, it
1: depends. I mean, I mean, the, the things you can do um, is uh, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, we made this program. We made this program with Franz welser when he arrived as music director in Cleveland, and the program had um, an opening piece. It had a an unusual concerto, and it had a major symphony. But here's how the program came out. The first half was the Pastoral Symphony of Beethoven, mm-hmm. which actually works, I think, better on the first half than the second half. Yes. And then the second half, the concerto, was a modern work by uh, a fellow named H.K. Gruber, Viennese called Frankenstein, for speaker and orchestra. Really crazy, crazy, wacky. Wonderful piece, about half hour long, and then we closed with the von Suppe poet and peasant overture.
0: Wait till you flipped it
1: correct so so just by flipping the program, notice how all of a sudden it feels completely fresh mm-hmm. Um and if you think about that program, the von Soupe overture is a pot boiler with a you know just frothy and fun. That should come at the end, not before the modern piece. Right. So just by flipping the order. Or another thing you do is you don't do, don't, don't make a program of three pieces. Make more than three pieces. Uh, we did a program in, in Cleveland with Doc Nani, and the the, the program was the Adagio from Mahler's Tenth Symphony. Followed by the Schoenberg Piano Concerto with Mitsuko Uchida.
0: Oh, <gasps> my God.
1: And then the second half was originally going to be the Jupiter Symphony of Mozart. Mahler, Schoenberg, Mozart. Yeah. The fact that the, the biggest work was at the beginning and the Mozart, which is I mean, it's as big a symphony but not in forces, and the second half is already slightly unusual but we weren't satisfied with that so what we did is we opened the second half with an 11 minute piece um, of Schubert which was a, fr- a fragment of his uncompleted 10th symphony um, that's, so you had a fragment of Mahler's 10th Schoenberg, intermission fragment of Schubert's 10th um, Jupiter symphony and all of a sudden, it just feels completely different.
0: Hmm. Wow, I'm listening to your programs, and I really wish I attended these concerts. But that's what you can do.
1: And, and, and you know, audiences respond wonderfully to, to these things. And it's, and it's not, when, when you talk about creative programming, that's not code for contemporary music. It's, it's just thoughtful programming. I'll give you one more example, um, which was also a program that we did um, in Cle- it, with the Cleveland Orchestra, but we did it at Tanglewood. We did, we did in 19, 1990, 1991, I suppose, we went to Tanglewood. The Boston Symphony was in Europe, and so we played the last weekend of concerts with the Cleveland Orchestra. And the last program was Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which was, you know, standard. Um, and we did a, f- a strange four-piece program on Friday night of a piece, an early piece of Anton Webern, called him Sommervin, beautiful piece. Mozart Piano Concerto, Intermission, The Unfinished Symphony of Schubert and Till Eulenspiegel. I mean, it's, it's, it's not unusual repertoire other than the Webern, but... It's, it just feels different.
0: When you put it together.
1: Yeah. And then Saturday, and this is the point of the story, what we knew is we wanted to end the program with Varez Amerique. And I don't know if you know this piece. It's you know, 25 minutes for an orchestra of 145 players. You know, just immense orchestra. And uh, even though a lot of it is very quiet, but at the end of it is probably as loud of sound as you can imagine. There's twelve percussion players in the piece. And it's just it's just massive. And we knew that the first piece on the program, the first half, was going to be the Schumann Rhenish Symphony. So Schumann Rhenish Symphony, Intermission, something, then this massive Varez piece. And the Varez piece starts rather quietly. So the question is what to do. And Nanya and I went round and round of what to do, and and we couldn't figure it out. What was the perfect piece to do there? And this is a true story. Uh, it was time that they had to announce the program, and we had we were in New York on tour, and we were in a restaurant having lunch. Nany and I. We walked into the restaurant, and over the PA system, the music, we heard dum bum 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 bum. bum, Ina Kline and Ach music of Mozart. We both looked at each other and said, that's it. And that's what we did. So the second half started with about 30 string players playing Eine Kline and music. And then all of a sudden another hundred plus players came on stage and we, and we did the, um, the Varez. It was a sensation.
0: The variety of taste, like the color palette that you gave just in the second half of the program is insane.
1: But you see, by just each of those, by just changing the patterns and also doing some pretty interesting pieces, um, all of a sudden it just feels completely different. Mm-hmm. And, and think of the audience. You know, The audience doesn't quite know where to land.
0: I mean I think that's the best position for any audience to be. Of course. Of course.
1: And so I'm a I am fanatical about programming.
0: That's so interesting. I would I would sit here and listen to all the your programming stories if I could. <laughs> there's
1: there's 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 about 35 sorry, 50 years of them. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, but it, but that's what's fun. You know, and and um to work with great artists and devise things. Um, I mean, what's better than that? Because that's what they want too, and and it's it, there's no it. It's not worth finding simply the easy route.
0: I think as a musician, anyone would appreciate having someone like you who's so willing to do to do something or take risk or to do something that's not, I guess, not traditional or not conventional.
1: No, and there's nothing you know. Occasionally, if you do a, a dreaded three piece program once in a while, that, that's fine. But but you know, don't get don't get wedded to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, be and 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 why do why do concerts have to be two hours long? Why can't they be one hour long? Why do you need an intermission? You know, um, change it around. And uh, why on an orchestra concert? There's just orchestral music. Why should there be chamber music?
0: I would love if chamber music was in a conventional. Concert.
1: We we did a, we did a program in Boston in Ozawa's time at Tanglewood. The first half was Les Sortes Soldat Stravinsky, seven players. Second half, The Rite of Spring. You know. That sounds crazy. But it's wonderful. You know, and, and and the way we did it is we had the whole stage empty for the uh, at least to sold out just the seven players not all all the chairs and stands for the rest of the orchestra weren't there either just seven players intermission stagehands set it all of a sudden the audience comes back and there's this you know 120 piece orchestra i mean they it you really understand visually the impact of what the rite of spring represents
0: mm-hmm. it's such a massive work and by putting it after the seven people just puts it in context. Correct, correct.
1: And you you know you get and people's ears to get used to seven players and all of a sudden they have to adjust to this huge... It made, it made the impact of the Rite of Spring so much greater.
0: Well, I mean, after such a successful career, 35 years managing Boston Symphony and the Cleveland Orchestra, and then 16 years as the artistic director. You've been already giving so much advice, but do you have any final words for students who are looking towards a musical path in their future?
1: I think the most important thing is start from the standpoint of the music and what you believe musically, and don't be afraid. You're dealing with a music industry that in so many ways... um, tends to resist real creativity. Don't accept it. Um, Find organizations and find people who share your beliefs, who will help uh, realize what you you believe. But start from the excitement of what music can be. Because if the artists and the presenters are excited about what you're producing, I guarantee the audiences will be. The other way is even worse. If you're not, the audience will will see. So be daring and stand for something.
0: Thank you so much for your time and your stories and your experiences, Mr. Morris. It was so great to talk to you.
1: Well, it's great to talk to you and nice to see you again.
0: (laughs) It was great to see you too.